King of creation, Lord of all nations. That's truth that needs to go far deeper than just our minds. We need God's grace to demonstrate that in how we live, how we respond to the challenges, circumstances of life. A young couple found the perfect home to meet the needs of their growing family. They submitted an offer through their realtor and then waited with anxious anticipation for the seller's response. Two days later, that response came and when they learned that the offer had been accepted, their excitement just soared. Everything was working out just as they had planned. Of course, they still had to sell their current home before their contingency offer expired, but they were sure God was going to work all that out. No offer came, however, and that offer did expire. And somebody else came and bought their dream home. They were crushed. Why would God let that happen? Premature excitement over our own personal expectations can set us up for deep disappointment. We've all had that experience, and eventually we get over it. Sometimes, though, disappointment can turn to despair and even doubt in God's goodness. Maybe even doubt in God's greatness. Maybe he couldn't do anything about it, or maybe he just wouldn't. Luke's account of the triumphal entry of Christ is a case in point. As we've already read this morning, he was welcomed by the crowds of people so excited to have him arrive in Jerusalem. But they were excited for the wrong reason. They thought that Christ was coming to set up his final kingdom and destroy all his enemies, which from their perspective would have started with the Romans. Let's finally get our kingdom, and Christ is just the one to do it. But Christ hadn't come to set up that kingdom. He had come to die. And when they came, these same crowds, as they came to realize that just a few days later, as they saw Christ hang on the cross, they were devastated. This didn't make any sense. Why would God let this happen? Well, they should have known that God's plan, when God's plan runs counter to our plan, It's because God has a higher purpose in mind, something more important to accomplish than satisfying our desires. 
Now, we should know that too. Our passage before us today here in Luke chapter 19, I urge you to open your Bible, let you see this, uh, this lesson for yourself, that Jesus sovereignly fulfills his redeeming role. And by the way, that is an ongoing role. It did not end just with the crucifixion. He is still at work redeeming this world. So you must submit to God's plan. That redeeming plan is far more important than your convenience, satisfying your ambition. Submit to God's redeeming plan. This is a marvelous uh, uh, passage of scripture presenting Christ sovereignly accomplishing God's program. Verses 28 to 34, Jesus here is the sovereign Lord. And you might already be wondering, how should they have known that uh, he wasn't coming to set up that final kingdom? Well, Luke seems to have anticipated that we were going to have that question. And so he's already directed our attention in verse 28 as this passage opens. He's linking this with the previous passage. He says, when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he had said what things? The previous passage is a parable that Christ taught. It's a parable that we know as the parable of the minas. It's a long parable, but what we need to see is, is right there at the beginnings, and that is at verse 11. Luke tells us that what Christ was doing is directly related to what Christ had just said. He told this parable, and our question is why? What is the significance linking this parable with the triumphal entry? Verse 11 says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. They are mistaken. This parable corrects them and should be sufficient to correct us as well. It's a long parable. Let me just give you the highlights that we need to know. He says in verse 12, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. There's the key. Christ is describing himself here in terms of this nobleman. In order to get that final kingdom, he has to go away first. This is just his first coming to earth. He has to go away once this work is complete on earth. Go away, receive his kingdom from the Father, and then come back to rule. The rule is still in the future. The other work of his first coming, he has to complete first. So let's go back to verse 28. 
when he had said these things, once he had clarified that there is going to be a delay, I have to go away to receive my kingdom. Once he has made that clear, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Verse 29, following God's plan in that way, verse 29 through 31 tells us that he now has some details to attend to. And he uses his people to accomplish that. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, now, it might be helpful to get your geography in mind here. And if you would just picture the Jordan River, Christ has just came, come to Jericho, and now he has 15 miles of an uphill hike to get to the city of Jerusalem. Just before he reaches the peak, which is the Mount of Olives, before that, he comes across two villages, which are still there to this day. You can still identify Bethany, pretty good-sized city, and you can see the little town of Bethphage. Uh, when he was when he drawn near to those, right on the, on the uh, backside, the east side of the Mount of Olives, uh, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie him and bring it here, and if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Now these are very explicit instructions. And he's anticipating that they are going to face a challenge. I need a colt. You go find this colt, and Christ has one very particular colt in mind. It has to be just right, one that nobody has ever sat on that would be appropriate for the presentation of himself as the Messiah. As we've seen the, the life of Christ unfold in these uh, past few months, uh, Christ has, has been presenting himself as a Messiah, but not openly. He's doing it by evidence, by his teaching, but he isn't saying he is the Messiah. He wanted people to discover that. Well, now for the first time in the closing days of his earthly ministry, just before uh, he uh, dies for our sin, now he's ready to present himself to the people of Israel in Jerusalem itself and riding on this donkey in fulfillment of prophecy is so much as saying, I am that Messiah. All these details then are important. He has to have this particular cult. When he says to that, uh, when he says to the disciples, if somebody questions you, you just tell them the Lord has need of it. What is Christ doing there? Somebody else owns that donkey. But he is saying, over that owner, I am the owner. I not only, only own the donkey, I own the person who owns the donkey. And all he has to do is announce that I need that donkey and I am the Lord then he's confident 
that human owner is going to deliver exactly what Christ needs. Here's a reminder that all that we own, everything that's in your bank account, everything, every piece of, of property that is under your name, you're just a caretaker. The Lord owns it all. Verses 32 through 34 continue that story. Tell us how it turned out. As it happened, it turned out exactly as Christ described. He is never frustrated by circumstances. He, is, uh, he never experiences delay because he is the sovereign Lord. And he achieves every goal that he sets out to accomplish. So verse 32 tells us that those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. What do you know? Of course, it's just as he told them. He's the sovereign Lord. And as they were untying the colt, imagine they were just a, a little bit nervous about that. Uh, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Exactly as Christ said, and it happened just as he expected. This tells us that his knowledge is always accurate. He knows exactly what is going on. His knowledge is complete, it is detailed, and his instructions to his people include everything that they need in order to accomplish his purpose. It always works that way. He knows all circumstances, not just because he can see the future. He knows all circumstances because he controls the future. He makes it work the way he wants. All current circumstances going on in your life and their outcome are in his hands. We also see in these few verses that his power is compelling. He was even directing the conversations, not just of his people, you say this, he was directing the conversation of the owner, owners of that donkey. He knew what they were going to say because he was prompting them to say what he wanted them to say. What control? We should be marveling at this sovereign Lord, the Lord of everything. This all just confirms his universal authority. Those there's a word play here that we don't get in English, but the owners of the donkey, Luke uses the word, they were the donkey's lords. But over its lords stands the Lord, sovereignly controlling all circumstances. Now, we might wonder, why all these donkey details? Hasn't Luke gone a little overboard? 
what he just took, all these verses to describe, wouldn't have been very hard to summarize the, the whole process in about a verse, or maybe even a half verse. Why do we need to know so much? The detailed plan, the outcome, and everything's just the same. I think the answer to that might be he wants us to realize that he controls even such minor details in your life as well. We're talking here about the things that you don't have any choice about. You know, the location of the donkey, how the owners would respond. They're not in our control, but they're in his control. The circumstances in your life that happen to you, they're not the result of your choice, they're a result of God's choice. God has made them work out that way. That means that, let, let's say you're running a little late for work one day this week, and if you could just get through this coming green light, you still have a chance of getting there on time, but no, the light turns, you have to stop, and it happens to be one of those two and a half minute lights, <laughs> and you're not going to make it. Does he control that light? Now, you can't conclude from that. Well, then God must have wanted me to be late to work. No, he probably wanted you to leave a little earlier that morning. Uh, that was a choice you have. But you might get a surprise assignment, and it just throws off your whole schedule for the day. Your computer might stall. And a crucial 15 minutes, you can't get it to work, and you had to have something completed. Does God control that? You see, all those circumstances that to us just seem random, they seem purposeless. God's plan is never purposeless, and he's never random. All those things are under his control. What should our response be? Submit to his plan. Can I say it this way? Maybe even embrace his plan. To acknowledge that when it's not what you wanted to happen again, it's because it's what God wanted to happen, and somehow or other, it plays a role in his big picture. And so it's okay. I submit to that. These verses then have portrayed Christ as sovereign Lord, and that would seem to encompass everything. What's not covered under sovereign Lord? But there is one more feature that Luke wants to highlight about Christ and about his authority. And that's what comes up in verses 35 through 40, that Jesus is the sovereign king. 
He's fulfilling specific messianic promises as the son of David, as the coming king. He is Lord, but he is also sovereign king. And as such, the triumphal entry portrays Christ accepting the praise of his followers, praising him for his kingship and his sovereignty in that role. Verse 35 says, they brought this donkey to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he wrote, Uh, As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Now, these are particular actions that they were taking that day. We don't have any record of them doing this to Christ at any other time. don't have any other record of him riding a donkey, let alone have uh, their clothes on the road in front of him. But there is a biblical precedent for this. There was an instance in the Old Testament when a, a prophet declared that a, a captain in the army was being elevated by the Lord to king. And as soon as the people around him heard that news, they immediately bowed before him and put their garments on the steps as he emerged from that building as a sign of royal honor. What the disciples were doing on this occasion, these were actions that assert his royalty, a public visual mark of honor that Christ then accepted. We, we find from the other gospel writers that they also laid in the road uh, leafy branches, including palm branches. And so this event has become Palm Sunday, which is always the Sunday before, uh, before Easter. But then they, besides these actions, they also have some things to say. Luke moves on to that next. And these statements also assert his royalty. It says, as he was drawing near, picture him now as getting just to the crest of the Mount of Olives, and as he crosses that that peak, he, he will then have the view of the city of Jerusalem, and his route will go right down the side of that mountain. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Now, this is clearly going way beyond the 12. This is a multitude of his disciples. Where did they come from? And what are they doing here in Jerusalem, of all places? Christ has had very little ministry in Jerusalem up to this point mostly been in Galilee. Or remember what time of year this was. Christ was coming for the Passover. And so were hundreds of thousands of other Jews all over the countryside. And many of them, Christ had been in their village, preached in their synagogue, had healed their sick, had taught them the truth of God's word. And on that basis, they they were just convinced this this is the Messiah. And they were watching his ministry unfold. 
And as they were doing that, they, they qualify then as disciples, but now they're coming to Jerusalem as well. And just a stream of them, the roads would have been full at this time. And as Christ is coming down the Mount of Olives, the streets are lined and they see, here is one coming, sitting on a donkey, clothes as a, as a saddle. People are putting clothes in front of them. You imagine the crowd just opened up. The, 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 the lane would have been full, but they all spread to the side to see this one coming. And those that had seen Christ in his ministry perform these wonderful things, and that's what Luke highlights, they begin praising him for all the mighty works that they had seen. They are praising him for the evidence that he is this sovereign king they've been waiting for for so long. And what do they have to say about him? Verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting from the book of Psalms there. The king who comes. They see it. They see evidence of his sovereign rule about to come. But you see, these are the people that Christ was trying to correct with that previous parable because what they think they are seeing is Christ coming as conqueror. And he's going to go right to the temple and establish his throne and he's going to rule and destroy all his enemies. And they're right, he's going to do that one day, but they're way off on their timing. It's become clear now, uh, about 2,000 years off, and maybe there's still going to be some more. They're mistaken about it. They got the right identity. He is the sovereign king, but they're all mixed up on the timing of this kingdom. Their expectations don't match the reality of God's plan. This sovereign king was riding on a donkey, a beast of peace, not on a, not on a horse, an animal of conquest. That was a deliberate choice on God's part to have his son come on a donkey. The message is, I am coming with peace and salvation. This is to pay for your sins so you can have peace with God. And God can save your soul. Now, looking back, we don't have any trouble seeing that we wouldn't want to be bypassing this portion of God's plan. How exciting to have Christ come as the conquering king. But if he had done that on this occasion and had skipped the saving part, the dying part, the hard part that doesn't measure up with our expectations, then we would have good reason to be devastated. We would have lost everything. 
God's plan was different from their expectation. What they wanted would have resulted in their own ruin. If we can just have it our way, everything will work out great. That sound familiar? Not if it's not God's plan. And who would want to switch our own in place of God's? We would be the losers. These last two verses are also important. Because Christ, having accepted the praise of his followers, now confirms himself in so many words the truth of his royalty. Verse 39 records some of his enemies, opponents, and they don't don't go along with this idea of him being the sovereign king, and they, they are sure that the disciples of Christ are going way beyond what they're supposed to say. And so these, uh, some of the Pharisees and the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Do you hear what they're saying? They're proclaiming you as the sovereign king, the promised Messiah. Come on, straighten them out. Christ, in a very dramatic way, says, no, because they are speaking the truth. His way of saying that is, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. In other words, the stones know better than you do. All creation, Paul tells us in Romans 8, all creation is eagerly awaiting the coming of this king, because when he comes again, all creation, nature itself, will be released from its bondage to corruption. They are just bursting, waiting to join the praise of God. Christ here is confirming the truth of his royalty. Opponents may continue to reject him today, and they do so vigorously. But creation will embrace him. God's people, despite the widespread unbelief of our society, God's people must continue to speak the truth. This one is the sovereign king. He's the sovereign Lord of all. I not only follow him, I submit to his plan. I'm convinced it's best. As we've seen, these disciples, for all of their energy, praising Christ, praising him was the right thing to do. Where they were mistaken is what he was coming to do and the timing of his plan. But they were, in fact, welcoming the redeeming king. That's why Christ accepted it. What he was going to do, they were wrong about. But that he was that very one, that they were correct. One songwriter has captured the real significance of the triumphal entry. 
He said it this way. This is from the perspective, I think it's from the perspective of the Lord himself, of God seeing his son, and God who knows the plan, knows what is coming on. It says this, ride on, ride on in majesty, calling for Christ to continue that journey down that hill into the valley and all that awaited him. Thy last and fiercest strife is nigh. The father on his sapphire throne expects his own anointed son, expects him to fulfill God's plan. Second stanza says, ride on, ride on in majesty, in lowly pomp, lowly, riding on a donkey, in lowly pomp, ride on to die. Do it. The cheers were encouraging Christ to do what God had called him to do. Bow thy meek head in mortal pain, and then, O God, take thy power and reign. First to die, then to reign. Christ can't skip the hard part. There are hard parts in our lives as well. Seems we could skip them quite easily and get along just fine. Not in God's plan. Several weeks after the disappointment of losing the perfect house, that young couple found another option. This one had some definite advantages, they came to realize. First, it was on a small cul-de-sac instead of being on the main road. That was nice. And the backyard was just expansive, many times bigger than the other one, and had some privacy to it. But best of all, this house wasn't built yet. They were going to get to pick the layout of, uh, of the interior. They're going to get to pick all the finishes. The other house was already about done. And best of all, because it wasn't built yet, their, their offer uh, was, go was going to stand until their house sold and the house was under construction, so there wasn't the time crunch they had before. What do you know? What looked like a perfect plan, God had a better one. We don't often get to see the resolution and the improvement, the better version that God has in store. But we have enough evidence of our God's goodness and power and grace to know there's always a reason and his plan is better. Christ is still fulfilling his redeeming role. Final redemption will come when we get our new bodies. He has glorified us. 
and completed his program. In the meantime, God's people must be content to let him pursue that plan. We must not insist that he skip any of it. He is moving steadily toward our perfection. He's doing all of this for our benefit. The events that disappoint us are essential to that plan. And instead of asking him, what are you doing? We should, with that songwriter, say, oh, this is really hard. This is difficult, yes, but ride on. Lord, continue to pursue your plan. I urge you to ride on to its fulfillment. I accept your plan. Now, there's no exaggerating how hard that choice is. But this passage urges that you tell the Lord to ride on in your life. He doesn't need your permission, but to have your appreciation, to have your uh, uh, to have you embrace his plan rather than fight against it. That would be great. Will you tell the Lord in these closing quiet moments as we conclude our service, will you tell him, Lord, ride on in my life. I want nothing less than your plan for me. Let's bow for prayer. Father, how we thank you for your wisdom that could devise such a plan. We thank you for your power that can carry it out. We ask your forgiveness for all the times that we argue against your plan and think that ours is better. Father, would you help us then to, like Christ, pursue even the things that are hard, to embrace your plan to trust that it is better in every single detail. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.